Grace and mercy and peace belong to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is approximately 30 A.D. In spiritual terms, things are bad. The great Bible commentator F.W. Wenzel says that at this time in history, the world is bankrupt spiritually. Let's look at a few areas. First, let's look at the superpower of the time, the Roman Empire, the traditional beliefs in Roman virtue, by this time have disintegrated to a great degree and and fallen down simply into materialism, political corruption, hedonism, always looking for pleasure, cynicism. A writer at the time says that all that matters to the citizens in the Roman Empire are bread and circuses. In other words, food, pleasure, entertainment. And this thinking, this attitude towards life, for some is even giving way to atheism and despair. But now let's look at a far corner of that empire, along a strip of land on the far eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, among those who count themselves as descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there, things are no better. Among their religious leaders, there are two major factions. The larger faction, the Pharisees, they consider themselves to be the keepers of the culture the enforcers of outwardly good conduct. And in their zeal to be keepers of the culture and, and enforce outwardly good conduct, not only do they bring in all of the rules and regulations from the Old Testament ceremonial law, but they also add a bunch of their own just to make sure and in this zeal to do all of this, there is, lying just beneath the surface, a self-righteousness. A self-righteousness that presumes that their relationship with God is pretty good because we are doing pretty well. And their view towards the people they are to serve is one of polite contempt because they consider themselves far better than the people they are to lead. And with all this self-righteousness, there is little self-awareness regarding any personal sin. The other faction, which is smaller but was, is very powerful, is is the Sadducees. The Sadducees are 
they, they are almost secular in, in some ways at this time. They, they do not believe in angels. They do not believe in the resurrection from the dead. Instead, what seems to drive much of what they do, it seems to be driven by materialism and, and money, physical prosperity, as if those are the things that mark you as someone who has a good relationship with God. And then there are the people themselves at this time. Many, many among the people keep talking about the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. And that's all good. However, their expectations for the Messiah include their expectation that the coming Messiah will be a great military leader who will finally drive out the hated Romans. Their expectations for this Messiah presume that, that when he arrives, he will be some kind of supernatural conduit for all kinds of economic affluence. And their expectation for the Messiah also includes that when he arrives, he will make them the superpower of the world, dominating all else in place of the Roman Empire. And so into this cynical, pleasure-seeking, materialistic, self-absorbed, cultural chasm, there arrives a very strange man. He wears camel's hair for clothing. Nobody does this, but he does. He wears a, a leather belt around his waist. For his diet, he eats locusts and wild honey. And he lives out in the, in the barren wilderness. But there he is, in the wilderness. And he begins to preach. And when he does, people begin to listen. The first century historian Josephus, who is alive at this time, even he is paying attention to this odd man. He says that, that many are coming out in crowds to see him. He says that people are, are greatly moved by his words. He says that people seem ready to, to do almost anything he should advise. And what is this man's message? It is the evangelist Mark before us this morning who fills us in on this. First, Mark points us to a prophecy. A prophecy centuries upon centuries old from the Old Testament Scriptures. The prophecy proclaims that before the Messiah appears, God will send someone to prepare the way. The prophecy describes this someone as 
a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so with that context in place, with, with his having framed it in this way, Mark then writes this. He writes, And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance the heart of John's message. Metanoia is the Greek, New Testament Greek word for repentance, metanoia. And very literally, metanoia means changing your mind. Changing your mind. Now you and I change our minds about all kinds of things all the time, but this change of mind is the most profound change of mind of all. In fact, in order for this change of mind to take place, there needs to be the supernatural involved. The change of mind in metanoia, in repentance, has to do with a soul finally looking with clear, honest eyes upon his or her life and to acknowledge with grief that that life has fallen far, far short of what a holy God commands. That it's pockmarked with all kinds of sinful failure, failure towards God, failure towards others. But that's not the only change of mind. Also included in this is looking with eyes of faith upon the only one, the only one who can wash this away, the only one who can cover this with the holiness of God himself, looking with eyes of faith to Messiah, Savior of the world. And this cannot take place without the work of the Holy Spirit through the law and the gospel. That is the heart of John the Baptist's proclamation, which brings us to right now. You don't need to be told that you and I also live in a culture that is cynical, pleasure-seeking, materialistic, self-absorbed. And if you and I ever think for a moment that this culture, this cultural air that you and I are in and we breathe all the time, that, that we cannot be affected by that, 
The moment you and I think that, we have to realize we are simply entertaining a lie from Satan himself. Also, we know that the temptation at times can be overwhelming to you and me to place ourselves under the tyranny of the urgent, to place ourselves under the tyranny of the sheer busyness of life. So many things are demanding equal time for our attention. There can be the demands of work with all of its deadlines and all of its stresses and anxieties. There can be the demands of social obligations in our, in our relationships with others. There can be the demands of looking to our, our finances. There can be the demands of taking care of any property we may have. There are the demands of simple scheduling and forward planning and tweaking things as, as events change along the way. There can be the demands of seeing to our own health or the health of those we love. There can be the demands of, of seeing to the needs of our children or our grandchildren. All of these things are important. And all of them make a demand upon our time. But there will come a moment when you and I will face eternity. And in that moment, nothing else will matter except a repentant heart. Therefore, our prayer is this. Lord Jesus, you came for me. You became one of us. On my behalf, you lived a holy life. In my place, you carried all my sinful failures to the cross. There, you washed them all away in the blood. And then you rose from death, so that now, through faith in you, I am forgiven, I am cleansed, I am yours. Prepare my heart. Fill me with repentance. And move me to rest. In you alone. Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep our hearts and minds in Jesus. Amen.